Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. Have you ever wondered why the only answer we seem to get to our children's sleep troubles is to use the cry it out method? Whether it's crying it out or controlled crying, it seems the only thing that we get as an answer to our struggles is to do that. And it may come from doctors, family members, friends, sleep experts, and so on. This week, we explore that question. How did we get here? How did this become what we would call authoritative knowledge? And joining me this week to discuss this is Dr. Jenny Rozier. Her and I co-authored an article last year in the Journal of Family Issues that looked specifically at this, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So I hope you enjoy this because I can tell you this story is probably not what you think it is. So without further ado, let's delve into how on earth we got to the stage where crying it out is authoritative knowledge. I am so excited today. I have with me Dr. Jenny Rozier. She is an Associate Professor of Communication Studies at James Madison University. She's the author of several books, including Love Talk and Attachment Matters, and is the director and creator of the Relationships, Love, and Happiness Project, whose goal is to promote healthy romantic and parent-child relationships. She's also the host of the Love Matters podcast, and as she puts it, an all-around love enthusiast. And welcome, Jenny. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I know. So we are going to talk about our paper that yeah. on sleep training, which is kind of the antithesis of love, if I might say so. <laughs> but <laughs> before we get to that, how did you get into studying love? That's such a unique concept to be looking at, I think, especially in our world. Well, I went to University of Maryland College Park for my undergrad degree. And I had randomly decided to take a interpersonal communication class. I wasn't a communication major. And I took the class and my teacher was incredible. And I remember sitting there and she was just talking about all this research on romantic relationships and marriage. And I raised my hand and I said, you mean people do this for a living? <laughs> I had no clue. And she said, yes, people do this for a living. They dedicate their whole lives to studying this. And I was just not aware. And needless to say, that class ended up inspiring me to change majors to interpersonal communication and then go to grad school and then go get my PhD and dedicate my life to studying uh, romantic relationships. And I would say a little bit into my PhD was when I really started realizing that romantic relationships and parent-child relationships are so intertwined that there's no way that you can, in my opinion, that you can study one without studying the other. Lots of people do. Lots of people study just one of those relationships. But I really think that they're so interconnected and they influence each other so much that yeah. there's just no way that I could just say, oh, I study romantic relationships. So I really started expanding my expertise into romantic and parent-child relationships. 
Okay. So can you tell for listeners listening, like I hear Mm -hmm. interpersonal communications Mm -hmm. and I just think about, okay, how we talk to each other. That's like the only piece that really comes to mind, but I'm sure there's so much more than that because I admit I'm better at it thinking about my kids. I'm like, Ooh, there's all our nonverbal cues and the comfort and this and that. Mm -hmm. But so what does it mean to study interpersonal communication? It's studying human behavior. It's studying human interaction, how we communicate with one another, how we can best communicate with one another, what communication skills are important for different relationships. Um, And while a lot of them go across all relationships, some are really more specific towards one over the other. And so communication scholars, interpersonal communication scholars tend to focus on those bonds that we create with other people, whether it is our parents, our children, our romantic partners, our friends, our colleagues, our acquaintances, the bus driver that you see every day, (laughs) just all of the interactions that you have with different people and how we can make those interactions healthier and more satisfying and more rewarding. So that kind of takes us into our paper, which is, you know, on sleep training. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I have, I guess this is where it goes to that interpersonal communication, because sleep training is a form of communication. 100%. And and a big form of communication. So, I mean, you, we've talked about our shared interest in this and everything, but Mm -hmm. what, how did your interest in the parent-child relationship stem into sleep training more generally? When I was getting my PhD, my husband and I had surprise twins. Um, We did not know we were having (laughs) twins until I was like six and a half, seven months pregnant. Oh my God. (laughs) I know. And the, the doctor said, it was a new, you know, doctor. And she was like, well, you know, you're having twins, right? And I said, no, (laughs) what do you mean? She said, you had to have known you're huge. And I said, well, yeah, I just thought it was my first pregnancy. So yeah. So um, we had surprise twins and we lived 13 hours away from all of our family and friends. Um, We, they were premature about six weeks. So uh, yeah. So if I didn't find out till seven months and then they were six weeks premature, we had a very short window to adjust to this idea. (laughs) And so we were first time parents. We were first-time parents to two children. Both of our children had issues that caused them to cry a lot, um, more than the average child. So one of them had, like, he was a little colicky and he had a lot of acid reflux issues. And the other had a ulcerating hemangioma on her leg, like her entire leg, and she was just a mess all the time. So we had a lot of experience with crying during the day, during the night, all the time. And I, like every new mom, was tired of it and was done and just didn't, I felt like I wasn't doing something right. I felt like, you know, I was just beating myself up. And of course, who do I turn to? older people who already had kids, because that's what one does. And what did I hear from them? you need to do the cry it out method. Just do the cry it out method. At least you'll get them to sleep through the night. And you know, you know, they might not cry as much during the day too. And I thought that sounds terrible, but 
<laughs> I am desperate. Yeah. <laughs> and that is what lots of women feel. And so for one night, I tried to let our nine-month-old twins cried out and my daughter vomited and I walked in as I heard her and I said, I can't believe I did this. Please forgive me. I will never do this again. This is the worst advice I've ever been given. I don't know what I was thinking. I was literally out of my mind and I could, I was just so, so sad about it. And so that was the real beginning of my interest in the crying out method. And then I would say when I started um, taking classes about attachment theory, then I started really understanding the impact of attending to your child when they're in distress and what happens when you don't and that that relationship is really important and there's certain things you can say, do, and avoid to build that bond. And so then I started connecting the dots and thinking that, wow, this is not something that I want to do, but it's also something that I want to study more. And as you and I have talked, you know, doing a really scientific study on Cry It Out is extremely difficult. No one has done it well to this point. And so it seemed really unattainable. And so I started thinking about how can I figure out a way to convince people without this, because people just want, I want to know this hard science answer. And life isn't always about a hard science answer. And so that's when we came up with the idea to um, look at the history of it. And we thought maybe if we could show people where it came from, and how ridiculous it is mm-hmm. about where it came from, that maybe they would be like, oh, maybe I was duped into yeah. believing this was a good idea. And yeah. so that is the precipice of our paper. <laughs> and we have more coming, which is the yes, other thing exactly. that we have continued this book. So we'll talk about exactly. that a bit later. But yes, yeah, so for those of you that haven't read our paper, it is the premise is how did Cry It Out become authoritative knowledge? Mm-hmm. And that's a communications term, that authoritative yes. knowledge. And basically, Jenny, if you could talk quickly about what that means from a communications perspective so that people understand and maybe relate it to other things they might have a better idea about linking it to. Okay. So reality is socially (laughs) constructed. (laughs) That's where we begin. (laughs) Reality is socially constructed. Um, Reality would not exist without us talking about reality to each other. So Everything that you know in your life to be good or bad or true or false or real or not real is because of this social construction that we have all done through interpersonal communication, talking to each other about what is. And so whenever there's more than one knowledge system in a culture, one of them has to emerge as the most authoritative, whether it is true or false, um, backed up by evidence or not. Um, But it is almost always touted by experts as the best knowledge. And things become authoritative knowledge over sometimes years, decades, centuries. It can take a long time for something to emerge as authoritative knowledge. And so If you think about just 
like a really easy example that has nothing to do with parenting. But if you think about a celebrity that you like and you feel like you know certain things about them, think about how you know certain things about them. You don't know that celebrity. You know things about them because we have socially constructed this idea about who they are. So I always think about Leonardo DiCaprio because who doesn't (laughs) want to think about Leonardo DiCaprio? What I know about Leonardo DiCaprio is he is a private man. He is very attractive. He dates younger women. He seems to be very mysterious. Um, How do I know these things? I don't know these things because I met him and talked to him and I got to know him. I know these things because these messages have been delivered to me from either his PR professionals or himself or people who knew him or spectators or whoever. And all of this information has trickled down and people have talked about it with each other and talked about it with each other and talked about it with each other to where it has become this reality that he is a private guy. We don't know if he is. He might not be at all. He might be totally you know, a self-disclosure junkie, you know, and he just doesn't tell other people stuff, but he's like, you know, he could be like blirtatious and like totally word vomit all the time. We don't know. Um, But we have this idea of who he is because of this idea of social construction. And so these messages are given out usually by experts and people decide it's, it doesn't mean that you are that you don't have free choice. You have free choice. But when you hear things so many times, when your child is crying uncontrollably, and then all 10 women you spoke to said to do this one thing, it is very easy to think that that is the correct thing to do. I think also just of another example that always comes to mind when you talk about this is whether or not the earth rotates around the sun or the sun around the earth. I mean, for yeah. you, just to highlight too, because to me, yeah. that's the example that goes to how wrong authoritative knowledge can exactly. be. Because for so long, it was a given. I mean, it yeah. was heresy to say that the earth question. went around the sun. Yeah. yeah. Well, being questioned was, you know, sentenced to death. So yeah. there <laughs> is kind of, you know, we can take it a bit extreme there, but yeah. that is an example of, Somewhere they decided this. No one knew that for a fact because obviously Mm-mm. they didn't because we know it not to be true now. And sure. even then, you know, we're basing our assumption off of things we're told by others who measure things that I have never looked mm-hmm. at the actual patterns of the earth around. I haven't looked at the stars to see, you know, how we move around. And when I see other planets, I look up and I see a beautiful sky. I'm like, that's lovely. Uh, but yeah. that's about it. So yeah. we take this knowledge, the fact that our solar system is the way it is that, you know, I mean, even think about Pluto as a planet. It's, it's a damn planet. I'm going to stick with that. I know it's not, but you know, we grew up with it. It's really hard to change. that thing, And I think that's one of the big pieces too, that goes towards this kind of paper and this kind of discussion is that there's an acknowledgement of how hard it is to change our ideas about authoritative knowledge. So that backlash when Pluto was demoted, I mean, there's T-shirts still and everything. People still maintain Pluto's a planet. Uh, And I think it suddenly got re-upped to like a dwarf planet or something. So I'm not 
up to date on my, my I am not. <laughs> but this knowledge becomes so strong and so strongly held beliefs by us because there's something to it. And that is what we wanted to look at. And it's why it's so important to think about these constructs. And really the question comes, why do I believe what I do? Mm-hmm. Why is this true? And as we know with sleep training, people have really, really strong views about the yes. effectiveness of sleep training, the safety. I mean, I hear people saying all the time, it is proven to work and be safe mm-hmm. and everything. And I'll be honest, you know, we're working on a paper now on this and I, mm-hmm. you know, have done a module on it, uh, Ealing, but it is not, that's not backed by what no. we have in science. And yet somehow it has permeated to the point where it is exactly what everyone thinks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, is- Which can lead us to the next part of how this actually came yeah, to be. Exactly. That was where we <laughs> yeah. got. So how did we get here? And you know, I'm going to let you go through a bit of the beginning bit sure. here because I like this beginning is kind of fascinating. And I it think is. it, it, it relates is. to, well, I'll get to how it relates once you explain, but you yeah. go on in. How did we yeah. get here? So I have some really fun quotes from how we got here from, from the beginning of time uh, that, that I think will be really fun. So I'll get to those in a second. But it started off with fears about health. That was how all of this began, was that people were scared of getting diseases. There were lots in the 1800s. There were lots of diseases that people believed, again, no scientific evidence. It was just thought that they were delivered or they they were infectious through the air, through breathing impure air. And so there was lots of fears of disease and people started to say opinion leaders started to say things like, well, maybe we shouldn't be sleeping in the same beds as our children because they're really, you know, fragile and they shouldn't be breathing the same air as we are breathing. Um, And so it went from fears of disease and fears of um, getting sick to the fear of kids needing a certain amount and a certain kind of sleep. And so people started saying things like um, kids need consolidated sleep. And we know that that is actually not the case. Humans don't actually need consolidated sleep. Um, Prior to when we used to sleep through the night, prior to when all of us adult humans or children and adults Prior to that, we used to have two sleeps or uh, three sleeps. And in the middle, we would do in the middle of the night, we would wake up for one to two to three hours and do the laundry or have a meal or have sex or, um, you know, talk with your family members. I mean, it was just normal. And so segmented sleep used to be really common practice. But then when we started working during the day and we had to work during daytime hours, we had to sleep during nighttime hours and we didn't have time to wake up in the middle of the night and get stuff done. Um, So there was this fear of kids not getting the right amount of sleep and the right quantity or kind of sleep. And so they started talk people started talking about that. And then there was this interesting shift where 
experts and doctors would say that co-sleeping, not only was it not okay for the fear of disease, but it was co-sleeping could cause illness or death. And the co-sleeping, anti-co-sleeping movement and the uh, cried out movement are very closely related to each other. They happened very like parallel with one another and they influenced each other very much. And so this beginning of the anti-co-sleeping movement really like laid a foundation for people started to not do it. They started to avoid the practice. And so it really started to lay a foundation for people to then say, oh, well, if my baby can't sleep in the same room as me, then I'm going to have to figure out a way to help because I don't want to get up and move to the other room every time they need me. So I'm going to have to start figuring out a way to get them to go to go to sleep for longer periods. So there was a there was a um, doctor, Dr. William Alcott, in 1839. He wrote in a really popular pamphlet that was widely distributed, quote, it is bad enough for two adults to sleep in the same bed, breathing over and over again the impure air, as they must do more or less, even if the bed is very large. But it is still worse for infants. Their lungs demand atmospheric air and in its utmost purity. And if denied it, they must eventually suffer. And so he goes on to talk about how if you breathe air with your children while you're sleeping. So let let me back up. I, I forgot to say that back in the 1800s, people believed that the air that you breathed out of your mouth during the day was different than the air that you breathed out of your mouth at night. So there was something more impure about the air that you breathed out of your mouth at night. And so during the day, you could be in the same room with someone and breathe. (laughs) There was no fear of (laughs) breathing impure air during the day. It only happened at night. So our air changed. (laughs) And it kind of fits with that weird notion of sleep and health right? Linking yes. that idea of sleep and health is that why, when we try to understand why sleep is healthy for us, and we know yeah. people who, who sleep do do better, and obviously, we're talking about normative sleep, but sure. I could see somehow going, okay, maybe we are releasing toxins at night. So yeah. you breathe out more at night, and that's the process by which we're healed or we're... Yeah, that we release it all, and then we're refreshed for the next day. And and all of these ideas were based off of ideas. <laughs> they were not ever tested. I mean, it was the 1800s. What, how are they going to scientifically test any of it? And so these were just doctors or, you know, people who I guess we would consider nurses now would uh, just come up with these ideas and publish them and then send them out into the world, um, all over the country in wide distribution. And people would get these pamphlets and read them and believe them because they, an expert was saying it. And I think it's also important to note that in the United States in the 1800s, a physician usually only had a two-year apprenticeship. There was no medical school in the United States for a very long time. And so I'm not dissing the two-year apprenticeship, but I mean, (laughs) a two-year apprenticeship, (laughs) that's all it was. It was, you know, Bobby Sue wants to be a doctor. Well, follow Dr. Brown around 
for two years. And then Bobby Sue, you're a doctor now. So it, it was a lot less strenuous to become a doctor back then. And then those doctors had this knowledge that people just ate up. So then throughout the 19th century, this idea of scientific motherhood started to emerge. And scientific motherhood is the idea that women are told that they are responsible for the well-being of their families, but that they need to follow directions from their physicians. So this positioned mothers as both responsible for their families and incapable of that responsibility. And we still have scientific motherhood around today. We are told, you know your baby best, but bring them in for every checkup because it's important because you don't know how to help your baby. Uh, You know your baby best, but by the way, here's these 50 books about how you don't know your baby best. And listen to me because I'm an expert. Um, whatever that means. And so there's this like weird dissonance going on in these women's brains where they're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I know what to do, but (sighs) there are other people that know more. And so I don't know what to do. So I need to rely on them because I don't want to do something wrong. Um, And so this became really part of this emergence of the cried out method becoming authoritative knowledge. Then in, I want to say the late, yes, in the late 1800s, this idea of spoiling, spoiling an infant or spoiling a young child even um, started to emerge. And this was the idea that one, an infant or child could be spoiled. And that two, if they were spoiled, they would not be independent and that is bad. And so what this centered around was giving too much physical or emotional affection. In fact, there was a, um, a quote from an 1869 uh, household guide by a woman who was not actually a physician. Uh <laughs> She she said that uh, restricting affection and attention from an infant is needful and tends in the end to establish a more lasting affection that would re- then would result from overindulgence. Whilst over- overindulgence of affection is regarded as the stumbling block of life. So <laughs> these women were reading this saying, oh my gosh, so I can't overindulge my children like this is I can't hug them too much or love on them too much like this is okay all right I'm getting it so not only am I terrified to sleep with them at night because my air that comes out of my mouth is poisonous but two (laughs) um I now I I don't know that I can trust my own instincts because there's all these experts that tell me I need to trust them and then three Um, if I coddle them too much, I could spoil them and they'll never be independent. They'll never learn to walk on their own or talk on their own or run a farm on their own or get married or, and it was just these dire, dire consequences of spoiling. 
I just want to add in here, it's amazing how familiar all these themes remain today as we listen. And we talked about this, and I'm sure people listening are going, I've heard all that. That's all the stuff that I hear is you think Mm -hmm. about, you know, the health we now have and that link to the anti-bed sharing movement, right, is still there. We think about anti-bed sharing movements today, focusing on health again, Mm -hmm. um, SIDS, suffocation, et cetera, without the nuanced understanding that actually there's a lot of other variables at play uh, and that bed sharing itself should not be considered a risk factor in and of itself, but rather the safe bed sharing and everything else. And then we hear all these, you know, so instead of the disease, it's now suffocation. We've shifted mindsets, but still equally authoritative and equally not backed by science. Um, (laughs) Then we get the scientific motherhood, which as you said, is still always there. I mean, we're still Mm -hmm. told over and over again that we don't have the knowledge necessary to take care of our kids. And yet we place these experts in a position of authority. And it's not saying that we're all born knowing how to mother. That's not, or or parent rather, I should say. We aren't. But historically it was shared amongst a community. You got your knowledge from growing up, witnessing things, seeing mm-hmm. other mothers. You have this, this group that kind of does it. And now even we've got to, and maybe this is something we'll talk about in a minute, but hearing your story of all these older mothers giving you, imparting the wisdom, mm-hmm. that transmission of information that we used to have that was beneficial for us and then got usurped by scientific motherhood mothers are now supporting that scientific motherhood model by espousing again the expert views that are coming out and Um, let's be clear those expert views are often a game of telephone yeah yeah i mean really they're often a game of telephone. They're not even a game of telephone from when your mother sees the New York Times article. They're a game of telephone before that. Yeah. I mean, you're playing telephone from when the publication is done to when the popular press media ca- picks it up. And then another game of telephone from when you read it to when you tell 50 other people. Yeah. So... and. It doesn't, you know, what people, and that's why I always say, like, I look at the studies and can Mm -hmm. say, yeah, actually, it doesn't really say that. And this is one of the bigger problems that comes from this model that we have of dissemination of knowledge is that I think we have people with preconceived ideas sharing knowledge. We have people who I don't think understand the research process sharing knowledge. That is a big part of it. But also... Sometimes I just have to go, why are we even studying this to begin with? I mean, Mm -hmm. what is the, unless it's to debunk these weird ideas like breathing impure air, Mm -hmm. where where are we going with this? It just doesn't always register for me, to be honest there. But, and then we get to these stories of people being told all the time, the fear mongering around Mm -hmm you know, responding to your baby. It's still, people are told, if you don't do it, they'll never learn to sleep. They'll never get out of your bed. They'll never be able, do you want an entitled little brat that thinks you're going to respond to everything? It is, those messages are still there today. And it's amazing to think that they started over a hundred years ago. Like this is, and yet they've persisted. And this folks is exactly how authoritative knowledge becomes authoritative knowledge by passing down through these various streams. Mm 
Sorry, yeah. I interrupted. Keep no, going. No, no, no. And and to be clear, not all authoritative knowledge is bad, right? Some authoritative yes. knowledge is is correct and good and good intentioned and helpful, but you have to question how certain things rose to the top. There has to be some questioning. We can't just be drones that say, yes, ma'am, I will sleep train my baby because you said so. (laughs) We can't do that. We have to think critically. This is your child. Yes. And I think a good example of that positive authoritative knowledge, even though it's now being questioned and brought down, is in the vaccination process. Oh, and, yeah. you know, it, it it was very authoritative for a while that this was beneficial. It curbs diseases and everything. And we're seeing a backlash against that. I don't think that that's correct. But, yeah. you know, but I think it stems from sometimes where studies are failing to address the nuances because yeah. authoritative knowledge always has nuances, right? Like sure. this is the way it goes. And that's when we start to see the cracks. And I think, I hope at least as we'll get to that, we're starting to see the cracks in the sleep training too, even though I can tell you one side is still firmly oh, firm. encamped in the idea mm-hmm. that it is everything, but yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so, so back to the spoiling idea in the 1920s, there was a doctor named John Watson, a psychologist. So he was not a medical doctor. He, his name was John Watson and he wrote a book with his wife, although she is not named an author, which I think is number one rise for suspicion. <laughs> But they wrote the book together. So it should be Watson and Watson, but it is just Watson um, in 1928 called The Psychological Care of Infant and Child. And he discusses at length this notion of spoiling. A very large portion of his book focuses on love and affection. And he, this is a great quote from the book. Um, He says, quote, let your behavior always be objective and kindly firm. Never hug or kiss them. Never let them sit on your lap. If you must, kiss them once on the forehead when they say goodnight. Shake hands with them in the morning. End quote. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm imagining myself in the morning now like. I know. Thank you for waking up. And now we shall go on our day. Yeah. it's. I know. Mm -hmm. So this guy, this book that he wrote became so popular. It was one of the best-selling parenting-ish books um, of the time. And so many people read it and so many people told other people about it that it became socially constructed as reality. Like, this is how you parent your child. And even though decades of researchers have damned him afterwards... And he even said, maybe I wasn't right, because none of his ideas were based on scientific research or social scientific research. It was based on him and his wife sitting at the dining room table and him knowing what he knows about psychology in 1928 and writing. So he didn't conduct studies. He didn't. No. So um, even though decades of people really have critiqued him. And he has even said, yeah, I think I wasn't right. This was too much. It's still there. It doesn't matter because once it's out, it's out and you can't backpedal. You can't get rid of it. And it has his advice 
has lots of people would say has single-handedly, you know, ruined the lives of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of children, because their parents took this advice and became very dismissive of them. And so, yeah. I will share, I mean, just from a personal anecdote here, Mm -hmm. my family was directly affected because my grandmother, for my mom, came home, had all this advice back in the 1950s, and it was, it was this. She was told only pick her up every four hours, only feed her. So it had tempered down to she was allowed to pick her up a bit, but it was very regimented, only feed every, you know two to four hours, but give them the bottle as much as possible mm-hmm. to do it. Because she obviously had to bottle feed. She was told her breast milk was not good enough for the baby. Oh, yeah. So that was in Lots there. Of That's a whole nother. We could do a whole nother series of papers on that. Uh, we should. Yes. Let's, mar- <laughs> let's earmark that for a bit later. But yeah, she was told that. And, you know, I my mom's no longer with us and nor is my grandmother. But my mom struggled with deep depression most of her mm-hmm. life. And I think she even we found her poems she wrote in high school and there was mm-hmm. just nothing but sadness. And she struggled with touch, even though she yeah. was incredibly nurturing when we were young. She was able to do it. Once we hit about three or four, it was like, oh, touching people yep. was very difficult for her. Yeah. And my grandmother, in turn, witnessed what happened. And to give her credit at the end of her life, like we were speaking when she was older, mm-hmm. She was like, I was a horrible mom. That was not good. And I saw how your mom was and she was a wonderful mom. And I see you and you're a wonderful mom. And I feel really bad. And my my uncle too struggled with issues as well. He had lots of mental health issues. So that parenting damage. And I I feel very lucky that my mom was able to overcome that to parent us. But just as an example, I mean, and as the example too, I think where some of the strengths came in for people to buy into it. Outside, my mom looked like a model child. She was very smart. She was sociable. She was everything. You know, she was a model. She went to Princeton. This was, you know, from a parenting, oh, look at how successful my kid is. But what's on the surface is not necessarily what's going on underneath. And we know this now with respect to mental health, that kids will put on a front. They will survive. They will adapt in a way that lets them get through this. And that doesn't make it good parenting. It really, really doesn't. So no, no, it doesn't at all. Yeah. It's, it's, he, he has been criticized so much for the damage that he's done. Yeah. Luckily in the 1940s, uh, Dr. Benjamin Spock came around and he started to encourage parents to trust their common sense and to love abundantly and give a lot of affection to their children. And while I think that parents were like, took a sigh of relief, right? They're like, Oh, wow. Okay. I can do what I felt like I wanted to do. There was still that previously constructed belief in the back of everyone's head. It did not disappear that spoiling a child can cause them to be, I mean, to experience lots of negative outcomes, to cause them to be less independent, which let's talk, we could talk a while about why, why do we care so much about our children being independent? <laughs> but that's a whole not. another, because we know. And I just want to go to, this also speaks, I think part of that lingering goes to this scientific motherhood model, because sure. I think about my grandmother, she was someone who loved having, tell me what to do. 
she, you yep. know, was told she didn't know. It's a lot easier to hand people these structured, oh, shall I say schedules that we seem to all still have yep. left over from this, yeah. the feeding every four hours, the touching where, as opposed to just saying, follow your kid's lead, hug them as mm -hmm. much as they want. That's a lot harder for people that believe they need to have, tell me what to do um, mm -hmm. as a parent fall through because they don't trust themselves with it. Sure. And let's be clear, we all feel this way. This is not like, oh, the poor, weak people feel this way. We all feel this way. We all, every single mother feels like, oh, well, I've got to read the latest book or something's going on. I'm going to Google it real quick or, you know, I'm going to listen to this podcast. <laughs> Because they're going to talk about sleep training. Um, we all feel this way. We all feel like we need to get more knowledge. We're in no way saying that if you, you know, are impacted by scientific motherhood, that they're, you know, that you should just wake up and follow your instincts and just do it. No, scientific motherhood is important. We should follow the lead of experts if we have critically thought about what they're telling us to do. But we should be working with experts. And that is what the woman who created scientific, um, the concept of scientific motherhood, Rima Apple, she argues that we should be working together with experts, with physicians, with researchers. So mothers and experts should be working together and experts should respect what mothers know and mothers should respect what experts know. But at the end of the day, mothers should make their own decisions. I love this reminds me of Helen Ball's work in the UK yes. with basis, right? She's yes. created and it's not just her, it's all of her, Charlotte Russell, all of the team there yeah. have created so many resources so that health professionals can work collaboratively with parents to yeah. take the knowledge they have on, for example, SIDS, which yeah. I don't want every mother to have to go read every study and do all, like that's no. just asking too much. But when they have this baseline for, okay, here's how the conversation's going to go. These are the factors we need to talk about to make sure you have a sleep relationship that's safe. Yeah. That's, that's all we need, right? That is like, yeah. that's the type of collaboration that goes on. And then doctors being willing to hear a parent who says, no, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. And then saying, okay, how do we best then situate things and yeah. know that, you know, sometimes people may make a quote unquote wrong decision or not yeah. the ideal switch like decision, but the parents but we, I, are more aware of what's relevant to their circumstances. Yes. And I, I really hope that there can be a day and I understand that some women feel comf confident doing this, but there can be a day where all women feel like they can walk into the pediatrician's office and tell them exactly what they're doing with their child without feeling like they're going to be judged. I cannot tell you how many people I know who say, oh, once they ask me if they're sleeping through the night, I just say, yeah. Exactly. And they say, yes. are, they in the, are they in the crib? I just say, yeah. I don't even want to say, no, they're in my bed with me. Yeah. You know, I don't even want to say that. And this shuts down that discussion. This is exactly, exactly why when you don't have a collaborative model, people mm -hmm. dismiss the knowledge when they don't believe it's relevant to them. Yeah. And that's not what we want either. That's not how this is supposed to work. <laughs> it's supposed to be where we look at individual circumstances. And especially when it comes, you know, I think where I also struggle with this is that 
we've taken this scientific motherhood and the people we've put on the pedestal as experts are not experts in the fields that they're discussing with their clients. And this goes back to sleeping, to breastfeeding. I mean, there are some, I was very lucky the, the pediatric or the doctor's office, it was a family doctor's office we had when we lived in Vancouver. One of the doctors there was an IBCLC as well. So she handled a lot of the breastfeeding stuff. So it was lovely because they had someone there and she also helped educate some of her colleagues. So you could go in, talk about that, but that's more of a rarity than a normative thing. And so we have doctors who are seen as authority figures that don't have the background or the knowledge to be talking about sleep, to be talking about sleep training, to be talking about breastfeeding. There's all these things or even social emotional development for children. Mm -hmm. Let's be honest, that is not something that's covered in depth in medical school. No. And I have engaged in conversations with many pediatricians where they say they've never even heard about attachment theory. I'm like, wait a minute. What? Like, they've never even heard of it. Not that, oh, yeah, I remember talking about that one time in a class in medical school. No, never heard about it. And that always blows my mind because how, I mean, how can you give advice about any of this stuff if you don't understand the bond between (laughs) parent and child? (laughs) Right. This is and this is where, you know, this critical thinking comes into play is kind of going, okay, who is the expert? What are they telling me? Is that in their field of expertise? Because, I mean, I should never be talking to people about accounting, about, you know, I had um, I spoke to a bioarchaeologist the other day, Dr. Hal Crow, and I know nothing about bioarchaeology. I mean, you could I would never be able to offer anything of interest to anyone in that field whatsoever. And that's why if I need anything from that, I'm going to go to someone like her. And that is going to be how we assess our knowledge. But we've put in our culture certain people up on pedestals of global knowledge. And I think, you know, going back to what we talked about with scientific motherhood and the origins of that, that really did start when, I mean, it's a mix of patriarchy. You know, when doctors came about, it was often ma- white males, obviously. Yeah. They were usurping midwifery, where we had this model of a more collaborative women who understood the process. And even though we saw at the beginning with the onset of men taking over birth, worse outcomes for women and babies when they had a male in charge, a doctor in charge of their birth as opposed to a midwife. I mean, the only time in history we've seen reverse SES effects because we had, you know, it was the women who were poorer who had midwives and therefore had healthier births and babies. And this is, we still didn't learn from it. We still took this idea that the, honestly, male doctor remains that authority figure. Yeah, it's it's really it's a lot of unpacking to do and it's a lot of critical thinking to do. I mean, I just remember reading Rima Apple's book on scientific motherhood and the whole time I'm reading it I'm like this is fascinating. Am I stupid? <laughs> I mean, you know, the whole time I'm reading it I'm like, wait, am I not doing this right? So what like I I couldn't I didn't know what her end 
was going to be, you know, like the whole time I'm thinking she's dissing at the experts, you know, and I'm like, okay, experts are bad. All right. I'm not going to listen to my doctor. All right. This is what's (laughs) going to happen. And then I get to the end, like the whole time I felt like she was amping me up. And then a few times I'm, you know, near the middle end and I'm like, wait a minute. So now she's saying I should listen. Oh, I'm so confused. And then... (laughs) I just, at one point I skipped to the last chapter. I was like, what is going to, what am I supposed to do? Rima, I don't know. Um, But I remember reading that in grad school and I just thought this is, I mean, it's still one of my favorite books. I love it so much. And I just constantly think about that dissonance that women have in their head. And I am a critical thinking, educated woman. And I just cannot imagine the dissonance inside women's heads who are not good critical thinkers or who do not have the privilege of a higher education. It's just, I, they just probably just said, okay, we'll go to the expert. And I don't blame them because again, this goes to that authoritative knowledge. This is, and even women with higher education who have, you know, been taught this can still go to that because sometimes I think we, we switch out, whether we are critically thinking about our own field or another one. We have, you know, the critical thinking, the scientific motherhood. We know how we got here today. So Mm -hmm. we now kind of, I think, hopefully people have a sense of the ridiculousness of how we got to cry it out. Yes, it is a (laughs) fear-based system. But I think it's worth discussing a bit of this evidence because, you know, for us to come in and say it's authoritative knowledge, we may have shown that the evidence historically has not been there, that these ideas have been created from people sitting around the dinner table, uh, people who are smart thinking that they're so smart they get to just come up with a thought, and of course it must be true, to people today being told it is evidence-based. This is, and I've read so many papers, especially in the medical field, that argue that sleep training is an evidence-based intervention for infant sleep problems. And this is authoritative. I mean, it really is, even within the quote-unquote experts, it's treated as the authority. And I, I will, if I may just start here. Yeah. The research as we have it has suffered some flaws. Some of you may have already heard me talk about this, have read some of the stuff I've written on this. So I'm going to give a very brief overview here. But yes, the evidence historically for sleep training has been based upon parent report of sleep. And that is parents engage in it when they report their child has a sleep problem. That's another topic for another day as to what even is a sleep problem in infancy, because that's authoritative knowledge as well about what is a problem. And let us say, most of it ain't a problem, uh, at least from a sleep perspective. Whether it is for a family is a separate issue. But if you're told your child has a sleep problem, that can then become a problem for you, even if there is no such problem initially. So we've based it on parent reports. So people go into these studies, they tell them to do cry it out. Some are more or less rigorous. And then we ask parents a month later, three months later, hey, how much did your baby wake? last night? How long did they sleep? And parents are often reporting it's pretty successful, that by and large, their baby is sleeping less. Now, 
there's the first issue of efficacy versus effectiveness. And that means efficacy is when we look at how well something works in a really controlled research environment. And some of these studies were more controlled. They knew what the family was doing, how it was going. More survey studies might tell us how effective it is. In terms of what parents are reporting, we're still looking at parent report, but they're doing it at home on their own. They're not part of a study. There isn't a researcher checking that the methodology is exactly what they say it is, all that kind of stuff. And that's less successful than these efficacy studies, where I think of one study in particular, Lautzenheiser and colleagues, which was a survey of Canadian families, the vast majority found it really didn't actually work very well. It worked for a smaller group. Most people were doing it multiple times. And this was controlled crying that they were looking at. Um, they had to do it multiple times. Some families reported trying their first stretch for over four weeks of engagement with this. And I can't even fathom can't what even it imagine. was like. Right? Mm -mm. Just think about four weeks of that crying because at that point it hasn't worked at all. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing that the effectiveness of it may not be as great. Now we get to more recent studies, and there's only, because Jenny, this is what we're working on now, yeah. um, a review of this. There are five studies that we could find that have included objective measures of sleep. And in this case, we're talking about atigraphy. And that is where we put the little monitors on babies, see when they move. You will have heard me talk about this in a previous study with Dr. Mikhail Khan, or podcast with Dr. Mikhail Khan. There's some debate there, but by and large, there's measures of how to assess when babies are awake or asleep based on their movement and how awake or asleep they are. And surprise, surprise, when we compare those measures on infant sleep pre and post, again, controlled crying seems to be it, there's no change in their sleep. These babies are not sleeping any differently after the fact. Now comes the question of they may not call out to moms because we do see some of that parent report change. But so much of this fear-based element has gone towards if your baby doesn't sleep properly. If, you know, going back to what you brought up, Jenny, about even back in the 1800s, if it's not mm -hmm. consolidated sleep, if it's not mm -hmm. this type of sleep, that's a problem. And so, you know, we can look at this and say, oh, well, it's it's not changing their sleep. So therefore, clearly, it can't be the BL and end all. And what we end up with now is this shift again. It's Think about authoritative knowledge, and I think the thing I hope people take home is that once it's ingrained, you said it already, it's so mm -hmm. hard to take back, but it also then becomes this ever-moving target. So don't bed share, for example, because you're breathing out all your toxins and your baby will breathe it. Well, then we find out that's not the case. Well, don't do it because it might impede independence and touch and everything. Well, we start to discover that's not the case. Don't do it because it's going to kill your baby. You're going to suffocate them and you can't possibly do it safely. It, same with sleep training. It's you make them strong. It started with this idea of they need a certain type of sleep. And mm -hmm. you have to be able to get them this sleep or else they're going to suffer cognitively and everything like that. And now we know that's not the case. So now, again, the moving target is often this idea that they will not grow socially and emotionally. Uh, they will be dependent on parents. They can't self-soothe. The term I hate more than anything else oh, when it comes <laughs> And, can't stand it. <laughs> right? It's just, so we're switching these measures. And then again, we hear self-soothing. And I can tell you, there's not a single study 
that has looked at self-soothing with respect nope. to sleep training. Nothing. There is no outcome measure that considers that. So again, we have this idea of authoritative knowledge coming out in a way that is not backed by science at all, that is not that supportive of the evidence there. And this is kind of a problem, I would say, if, if yeah. I may. It's And so I guess we have the scientific stuff here. We have the method. And we hope that with authoritative knowledge, as we've talked about, sometimes it is good. Sometimes it's not. It's that process, though, of critical thinking that I think leads the scientific method forward. So when yes. we're allowed to critically look at this information, raise the questions, it forces people into doing more research that helps elucidate what is going on. So it was reviewers, I remember reading in uh, one of the papers from Wendy Hall and colleagues, that it was reviewers that insisted they do an actigraphy measure of sleep. So someone critically analyzed an initial draft of the paper and said, okay, you said they're sleeping less, but you haven't proven it to me because they just suddenly had the thought, hey, what? so they went and did actigraphy in a second study of the same paper and lo and behold found there was no change. So this was, you know, brought to their attention. They were forced to question that model they had and that assumption about what was happening through someone else's critical thinking skills going on. So, you know, it's I want to be clear that this critical thinking can go on through various people, it's your critical thinking skills as a reader, as a consumer of this information, as a parent, is going to shift what people come up with in the future. The more we question things, the more others have to then do the research. We Scientists require others to keep them on their toes to keep looking at this stuff. I mean, can I say, you feel that yes, way, right? Yes, all the time. Definitely. Good. So this is, that's, you know, the scientific method and evidence, I'll leave it right there because, again, there's a whole other topic there that we could go into, but another day. We're working on that paper. When that one's done, then we can get into more of that. But the last thing I really want to touch on here, because I think it really brings all of your work together, and this is what I love about it, is this link between attachment, love, and crying it out. Because... That's a messy area, and mm -hmm. I'm never going to suggest that someone who does cry it out doesn't love their baby, that they no. may not have a secure attachment. We know that doesn't necessarily fit in, but yeah. these concepts are intertwined because of yeah, our beliefs about each. So can you tell us they about are. how this goes? And like you said, there there is no evidence that uh, doing the cry it out method causes poor attachment there is no evidence that doing the cried out method means you don't love your baby. Uh, but there is evidence that responding to your child in a sensitive, loving way, especially when they're in distress, builds attachment. And there is evidence that attachment is vital to healthy human development. And there is evidence <laughs> that when you love your child, and they feel loved, and they feel lovable, and they feel enjoyed, and they feel cherished, positive outcomes result. And so for me, not doing the cried out method, even though I, like I said, I don't have evidence that it is directly connected, uh, for me, it's not worth the risk. 
it's not worth the risk. And I, I remember, I often think about, I can't remember who said it, but I often think about the, um, the analogy of, you know, not everyone who smokes cigarettes gets lung cancer. We know they're connected, but lots of people smoke their whole lives and never get lung cancer. Um, but it's not worth the risk. So I don't smoke. And that's how I feel about the cried out method, that lots of people who have experienced the cried out method have secure attachment. Um, lots of people who experience the cried out method have insecure attachment. It's not worth the risk for me. Yeah. It's just not. And, you know, I say the same thing. And I especially go to the other fact that there's so many other ways if you are struggling with sleep. Mm -hmm. There's lots of other methods that can be used. And I think, you know, I always say we should not be putting the burden of change on our children because no. they're the least capable of it. Let's think about it. People always talk about resilience with kids. It's bullshit. They build yeah. resilience through being cared for through this attachment relationship. And it takes a long time to build resilience. It does. It's, I mean, some of our resilience is there earlier because you know, we have certain resilience to physical factors in the environment. We have adaptations. But at no point do we want to assume resilience is there and therefore go to testing that unnecessarily or pushing it unnecessarily. What I think that we all need to do, Tracy, is get more realistic expectations about what sleep is even going to be like with infants and toddlers and preschoolers. Some kids sleep through the night without any kind of sleep intervention in the first several months of life. Some kids don't sleep through the night till they're seven or eight years old. I have not slept through the night in 11 years because I have been <laughs> caring for a child. Put that in your expectation bank. Yeah. Go into parenthood expecting that for about a decade, you will not sleep through the night. And then when it's less than that, you'll be happy. Yeah. And I have to say, as someone also, I haven't slept through the night, I don't think ever. Yeah. I always have to get up at least once. And that's just my body. So, I mean, if I, as an adult, couldn't do it, I couldn't imagine being forced to try and do it. If someone left me and said, you can't get out of your bed, this is what it is, it would be horrible. Yeah, definitely. So, yes, I agree. So, Jenny, thank you so much. This has been so helpful and such a wonderful discussion. Now, I need you to tell people where they can find you. And of course, I'm going to include all these links in the show notes. Um, so people can easily find you through that. But where can they look for you? What are the best places for them to follow your work? All right. So you can find me on Instagram at Relationships Love Happiness. You can also find me on Facebook or YouTube by searching for the Relationships Love Happiness Project. Um, I have a website, www.relationshipsloveshappiness.com. Um, I also host a podcast called The Love Matters Podcast with Dr. Jenny Rozier, and you can find that wherever you listen to podcasts. Perfect. Thank you. And like I said, guys, all these links will be in the show notes, so you can easily access all of them. Jenny, thank you so much. And thank like I said, you. we'll do this again next paper. When the next paper gets published. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. 
That's it for this week's podcast. I hope you found the information enlightening, even if it's a little frustrating to realize that that is how we got where we are today. Join me next week as I talk to Amy Wright Glenn. She's the founder of the Birth, Breath, and Death Institute. And we're talking about something a little more sensitive in that we are going to discuss pregnancy loss. Amy has been a teacher for doulas and other professionals, helping them learn how to best support families through this difficult time. And we're going to go through some of that information together. So please join me next week. And in the meantime, if you feel like leaving a positive review, we always appreciate it. Thanks for now and happy parenting.